Hello, friend. As always, I'm delighted you've decided to join me. As usual, I'm excited to share this week's episode with you, an interview with Heather Radke, author of Butts, A Backstory. See what she did there? And as is often the case, I couldn't be more excited to waste just a little bit of your time reminding you about patreon.com slash Mike Tully. The month is barely halfway over already. I did a special one-off podcast about the current and perhaps future state of AI-generated music. I had like a fever dream that inspired me to do an entire episode about songs with nonsense titles, your mbops and shamalama ding-dongs of the music world. And that's just on top of all the stuff that happens every single week. Tully time, rambling man. You've heard me ramble about it enough. I'm doing it yet again, so I'm going to stop. But I'll remind you again at the end of the show, believe you me, patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Hope to see you there. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before. He's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, Coming to you live on tape from an above-ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a contributor to the Peabody Award-winning Radio Lab podcast, a teacher at Columbia University, and most importantly for our present purposes, author of a book entitled Butts, A Backstory, newly available for pre-order in paperback. Hello and welcome, Heather Radke. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So my when I initially, I, I came across your book in a rather bespoke, if I'm using that word correctly, fashion. I, there I was in uh, an independent bookstore, just going through the shelves. And the first time you see it, you're struck by the novelty factor. The title sort of jumps out at you from amidst the rest of the um, the nonfiction section. Uh, b- but when you get past the initial surprise that somebody has written an entire book about butts, you actually open it and you read it. And then you start to wonder why has it taken someone so long to write a book about a subject that's not literally under our nose, but metaphorically sort of is. How and why did the idea of writing this book come to you? Um, and I'm always interested to know what's the tipping point. I know you do pods. I'm sure you can. You have outlets where you could write an article. When do you get to the point where you're doing your research where you say, this This is my first book, butts? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, so... I was a student at Columbia in the MFA program and I was writing essays and I I was kind of interested in the idea of what I call mundane shame. So like just like the everyday shame that we all feel about different parts of our bodies and lives and personalities and just like that feeling when you like leave a party and you're like, oh man, I shouldn't have said that. Where it's not something horrific, but kind of um, just everyday and, and kind of nagging. And I have always felt a sense of mundane shame about my butt because, you know, I grew up in the 90s in a suburb of Lansing, Michigan, super white. I'm a white woman. Um, And I had a big butt and my mom had a big butt. And it was like definitely um, kind of like, oh, that's a problem. Like we're going to have to find clothes that hide your big butt, that kind of that kind of stuff, both from within my family and then, you know, the way that people talked about butts in high school. And I was just like, that's kind of an interesting thing. Like, what does it mean to have part of your body that's too big or too small or kind of wrong in some sense. And I started to write a little essay about it. And when I workshopped it in class, it just got a kind of a big reaction, um, kind of like similar to what you just were describing in the in the bookstore. Like there's just something, first of all, about the word butt that really gets people (laughs) jazzed up. But also, I think there's something kind of relatable, even if that's not your specific experience with your butt. I think that there's a pretty common experience of having some part of your body or some part of your life that feels kind of not quite right according to normative society. Um, And then I realized, so I I kind of wanted to unpack why I felt that shame about my butt. And then I realized what a big topic that was pretty quickly and that it was not something that was going to be able to be contained in an essay or a single episode of Radiolab. Um, 
because it's basically like, you know, I, I could have written many volumes of this book, you know, like there were, this is the story of race in the West. It's the story of the history of science over the last three centuries. It's uh, the story of fashion. It's the story of um, different kinds of activism, fat activism and racial justice. And it turned out that it's just partially because we all have butts and because they've they've sort of come to take on such symbolic significance. It's like actually just a massive story that you could have, you know, you can write many chapters, if not many books about. Yeah, like it or not, this might be your lane now. You might be, you might be the butts lady. Settle in. I have that many... was a concern, but you know, you got, you got to follow your heart. Right? Yeah, exactly. There's worse problems to have than not loving your lane. I guess um, uh, speaking as one of the laneless, um, you. That was an excellent overview of many of the things that I want to talk to you about. But I, I uh, am fascinated by something you said in the beginning. Tell me more about this, like the 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 study or your interest in mundane shame, because I think I I specialize in those. I'm actually I tweeted recently. I'm taking notice of how many. There's something about me doing dishes that is the quiet time for me to go. Remember when you did that dumb thing that absolutely nobody remembers and then just feel like an imaginary uh, et tu brute, you know, stab to to the gut? I, I don't really have a question, but tell me more about your interest or what you've learned. Tell me something that you've learned in your as a result of your interest in that that subject. Well, I'm really I mean, the next thing I'm trying to work on, although I'm not sure it's going to work, is actually just about mundane experiences like doing the dishes and, yeah. you know, the way that that's like... Um, that is our whole lives, but we kind of act like we're kind of always waiting for something bigger to happen. And I'm very interested in the way we ignore the mundane to like wait for the grand. Um, but as far as mundane shame goes, I mean, I think the book in some sense was an exercise in trying to understand my own specific version of, or like, you know, really just like one sliver of like 4,000 moments of mundane shame in my own life. Right. And I guess a question I had was like, if I took it really seriously and tried to really understand where the shame came from and um, what, you know, what it represented to me and to the, to the world, like, would I be able to no longer feel it? And I think it's, it's probably not what the publicist wants me to say, because I might sell more books if I was like, uh, you know, here's how to get rid of your bad feelings about your body. But I think that the truth is it changed the way I think about my body and the way I think about my own moments of shame about my body. But it's it's not the kind of thing you can erase. You know, it's it's so um, it's so baked in from the kind of first moments we think about bodies and learn about bodies that you're never going to stop feeling bad about your body. But I do think you can or about it's not just about your body, about any kind of part of your identity or self. Um, but I do think kind of historicizing it and understanding that those feelings aren't really coming from within most of the time, they're kind of coming at you rather than out from you. Um, I do think it can be a way to kind of liberate yourself intellectually, if not completely emotionally from, um, feeling bad about yourself in these ways that are kind of ever present and rarely explored, I guess. Right. And at a certain point, you just have to make your peace with I, I hate that I'm from New Jersey. And I often quote Bruce Springsteen. It's not the way I wanted this to be. But he did say at some point when you start living with what you can't rise above. And I, I think a, a part of becoming an adult is saying I'm, I'm going to fix as many things as I can. But at a certain point, I do need to stop beating myself up. I'm not going to fix all of them. And I can't just live in a constant state of panic or anger or sadness because of that. But um, you touched on the the challenges in the book and and here of even talking about butts, um, the striking absence of not a proper term. I was talking to my wife about this I, and I, I told her I was going to ask you about this. And she said, well, there's, you know, glutes, but glutes is, I would never compliment your glutes unless I know you've been going to the gym a lot and targeting that area of your body. You can say boobs, you can say tits, but you can say breasts all we have are slang slightly funny words for our butt in in uh in common uh in our common language did you even consider another name for this book i didn't mm -hmm. because it's what i what i call it um 
but I think it's one of the most interesting parts about butts. Uh, the other thing about the word glutes is you're actually there only referring to the muscle. That's right. And usually when people are talking about butts, they're not only referring to the muscle, they're referring to the whole sadly, deal, which sadly, is muscle most, and yeah, fat. Some and, of us don't have much of that at all. Right. 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 <laughs> so I think... Um, it's a really unusual, I think it may be, it's the only body part I know about that is like this, where there's kind of no correct word. Like even when I talk to doctors who have to talk about butts, like they don't have a word they use that's sort of like the right word. Like you would, you know, like breasts is the good is a good analogy. Like you would never talk about, I mean, maybe you would, but it'd be sort of unusual to talk to your doctor about your boobs. But you'd be like, oh, I'm, I like have a lump in my breast, you know, that there's like a sort of like sanitized and kind of even just sort of beauty in that. But with butts, there's kind of, there's like, uh, you know, it's turtles all the way down or whatever that phrase is, you know, it's just slang terms on the layered on top of each other. And you'll find different ones at different times uh, and in different places for sure. Um, but yeah, I think it's a it's to me one of the things that that the meaning that that started to take on is just like our sort of discomfort right. with this part of the body and and also I think the funny nature of it like that there's it's hard to see it like you can't see your own butt actually it's quite hard to do that you have to like look in a mirror or have a picture taken um and so it kind of in a weird way makes sense that we also can't sort of straightforwardly deal with it if that makes any sense no it does it's like a chicken egg thing do we not have a straightforward word because we can't have a serious conversation about it or can we not have a serious conversation about it because we don't have uh, a straightforward word for it this is an unanswerable question but it's sort of at the core of the spirit of your book why are butts so funny i have two children and butts always make them laugh and yet yeah, you poop from your butt that's a that's a part of it for sure but even just kids will wag their butts at each other like did in all of your research did you get any closer to uncovering the mystery of why we find butts so funny no i mean i feel like you may have as much insight into it as sadly, i do sadly, yeah. I, I think um I th well okay i think first of all they are butts are an interesting part of our body in that they're obscene but they're not totally obscene like it's like like even on instagram you can show butts in a way you cannot show breasts you know you can't show like i mean it's often a contested thing and the rules change but like showing a nipple on instagram will get get your picture taken down but if you show a, a butt you're not gonna most most of the time depending on the year it's complicated but yep. the picture won't get taken down so there's a way that it's kind of like the dirtiest allowed thing. And I think uh, it's a thing I've wondered about with little kids. My daughter's too young for like, she's only nine months. So we'll see how I, when it actually comes up in her life. But you tell me, like, I feel like there's a way that it's a little bit transgressive, but it's not going to like get you a timeout to say, but, or to like wag your butt around in the way that if you really swore as a little kid, you probably would get in a certain amount of trouble. No, so there's something true. about it being transgressive, but not too transgressive that I do think is kind of at the heart of its humor. And then I think it's also just all the symbolic meaning. It's sort of like, you know, it's sort of Freudian, I suppose, but that there's like quite a lot of repression, which mm -hmm. there's so much humor that comes from things that are kind of like unsaid, right? I mean, you're, no, you're, you're the you're, comedian, you tell me. You're absolutely right. How dare you? No, um, don't put me on the spot like that. They are sort you're right. They're sort of, they're sort of PG. They're not G rated, but they're not PG 13. And you can say, but, and it's got, it's got a little extra sauce on it, but it's not, it's, it's, it's not a curse uh, in, in any situation. Yeah. Maybe that's uh maybe, maybe that's as good an answer as we're going to get. You point out, this is another absolutely fascinating point that you make in the book is how commonly butts are used as metaphors, not just for our uh, physical fitness, but by extension, our personal fortitude and even our personal worth. Uh, the examples, you know, you can be, a, you can be skinny and be a fat ass. If you're being lazy enough on a given day, somebody might need a kick in the ass or they might be a hard ass. Why do you think the size, shape, or perceived toughness of one's butt is so commonly accepted as a metaphor for one's self worth value? Well, I mean, it's such a complicated question. So mm -hmm. those, all those words are definitely like words that we associate with 
like fatness, thinness, and different modes of strength. And, um, but I think the answer to your question is actually one that's really rooted in the 19th century and our understanding of basically of how race was constructed in the West. Like, I think that there's butts were butts in the early part of the 19th century were used as well as many other body parts as basically a way to to make black women less human than white women because it was it was you know there were these so-called scientists like this man George Cuvier who used the um these there was this I mean it's sort of a I'll start back in the beginning of this story so there's a woman named Sarah Bartman who mm-hmm. um is brought up from South Africa in 1810 and she's um from a tribe called the Khoi and she has a big butt and these two british men you they display her in piccadilly which is like a place in london where they were doing a lot of freak shows at the time and people pay to come and see her as this kind of symbol of africanness essentially and then later about five years later, she is in Paris and she dies. And her um, there's a scientist named George Cuvier. He's a famous French scientist who does her autopsy and then uses those autopsy results as part of a bigger project that he's in, he's invested in um, to create categories of race and to sort of situate African people as as subhuman. And her large butt is one of the main pieces of evidence that he uses to create those racial hierarchies. And so there's a way that the butt then and then throughout the next two centuries becomes sort of a, a metaphor for humanness and um the creation of racial stereotypes, gender stereotypes, and these these other kinds of stereotypes that you're pointing to, which are about work and um, kind of worth, ultimately. And I mean, I think some of the stuff we were just talking about, about the way you can't quite see the butt clearly comes into play here, too, where essentially, like, we kind of don't take the butt seriously. And so it becomes this way that we can, it becomes a place where we can store a lot of metaphorical meaning. And that was, that has been true for at least two and a half centuries, if not quite a bit longer. Yeah. You document in the book, the sort of, it's like the, the tides, the way that, I mean, I guess if you go all the way back, everybody sort of knows the cliche. I'm assuming it's true that, you know, in the medieval period or whatever, to have a fuller figure meant you had access to a surplus of calories. And then at a certain point, I guess, in Victorian England, you uh, you, you get to this point where, I guess, you know, being fit is perceived as having more value. But then in the wake of the Sarah Bartman phenomenon, all of a sudden women have bustles and and and... It's a funny thing to go through fashions, and it continues, obviously, all the way up to the present day. I don't think butts have metaphorically ever been bigger than they are right now. Is it fair to say that our attitudes towards butts are really like a a, a fashion attitude, uh, and, and and if so, that really makes them different from any other part of your body, right? I mean, it makes it butts more like hair than like, you know, people may prefer bigger or smaller breasts, but nobody, well, until recently, nobody could do anything about it. Like, can you talk about the phenomenon of butts as sort of fashion statement? Yeah, I think it's it's super interesting. I mean, the question of whether it's the only one, we can sort of like, let's table that for a minute because yeah. I think that's an interesting question. I think, so Big and small butts definitely are come in and out of fashion mm-hmm. for two centuries, is which is like a kind of the amount of time that where we think of fashion in the way it is now. Before yes. that, it's complicated and it's not it's not quite as simple as like the like more like fleshierness equals more uh, money. But there's some truth in that too. There's like some really complicated stuff about Rubens, which is super interesting, but kind of not quite my my area but then in the um in the 19th century there the bustle comes into fashion at the end of the 19th century and the bustle is this kind of large fake butt that a lot of women kind of across classes wore and there's a lot of different theories for why the bustle became popular um one of them is that it was almost like a mimicking of Sarah Bartman's body and that it was part of this kind of very strange almost like repressed interest in 
black women's bodies by white women. And I think that's a very powerful theory that I'm really interested in. And then there's also other theories like um, it was a way to disguise the butt, like somehow like by making it so big, you like stop seeing the crack anymore. And that people were just like, it was actually like this weird um, kind of like sleight of hand of sorts. Or another theory is that like the giant petticoats of the mid 19th century, like they like sort of are all pushed to the back so that women can finally fit through doorways again. So there's all these different theories about that. But there's always all I'm sorry, these different if theories. I can interrupt you real quick, people may think they don't know what you're talking about. The bustle is just if you picture your typical late Victorian kind of woman wearing like far too many garments than any one human being should ever wear at a given time, the sort of like rump of the thing always sticks out in this sort of shapeless way. That's a bustle. Yeah, exactly. Right, like yeah. it's like if you just are imagining period piece, right? Like generic, like you're kind of gonna imagine a a bustle. It is like specifically the end of the 19th century, but I'm I'm not sure. That's always <laughs> like the they're not always that accurate in films. So yeah, so the bustle and there's a way that they actually look sort of they look very silly if you think about it. They look kind of like pieces of furniture as much as they look like anything else. Um, and then you know by the 20s, the butt is totally like like the flapper era comes in and all of a sudden having a very like um, plank like shape is kind of the look du jour. And some fashion historians say that that really has never gone out of style until very recently with like the, the in like about 1997, there's a kind of new interest in big butts again. Um, you can sort of see little fluctuations besides that. And I mean, if the question is sort of why does this happen? Fashion is a really strange thing. And it's I think it's a totally underexamined part of our daily lives. You know, like some fashion people would say that it's just the nature of fashion, that it, you know, it's a pendulum swing. If it if a thing is gonna be big, it's eventually gonna be small because because people and fashion demands newness. So there's some truth in that, but then there's always also other stuff going on. You know, fashion is like film or music or art, you know, it's it's responding to the moment it's being created in. And so there's always kind of a, I would argue, there's always kind of subtext to what's happening in fashion. So in the flapper era, you know, part of what's going on when they get rid of all those flourishes is like one way to think about it is like, oh, women are kind of freed from the corset and the bustle. But there's also this really interesting theory that like a new kind of control has come in um, by, because it's the time when people, when women are kind of their their first is kind of like a massive diet culture. So like the bathroom scale is invented and there's these fad diets for the first time. And there's lots of reasons why that is happening then. And so there's this kind of like um, complicated, like almost like tension between freedom, freedom and control in the 20s. And like it's all kind of happening on the grounds of the small butt, essentially. Um, and other places too, you know, it's like a small body is a body that's in control. And then we see that again in the eighties with the kind of, um, rise of fitness culture. Like there is a kind of freedom in fitness culture. Like women are allowed in some sense for the first time to like move their bodies and exercise and that there's a lot of joy in that. But at the same time, there's this kind of demand to have a body that is controlled and strong. And like, you know, like all those, those kind of phrases we were talking about before about, uh, you know, kick you in the ass, like, don't be a fat ass. Like, these are all other ways of saying, like, your body needs to be in under control, under the, your control, and you need to demonstrate that you um, have control over yourself on the landscape of your body. Um, you bring up a couple different subjects, but uh, first of all, the you interacted with the buns of steel guy. It's it sounds yeah. like you might have even interacted with the buns of steel guy a little bit more than you would have liked to. He yeah, sounds yeah, he's a real character. Yeah, tell us a little bit about the buns of steel guy because he sounds so interesting. His, yeah, his name is Greg Smithy, and he, he Greg Smithy invented buns of steel. And um, at first, I kind of couldn't get in touch with him, and I, even now, I kind of don't understand why because that man is a man who wants to be gotten in touch with. <laughs> he um. <laughs> He, once I found him, I talked to him, I mean, for days. He just wanted to tell me every minute of his life story. And then when my fact checker fact checked the book, she also talked to him for days. Um, and he's just, you know, he's he's a guy with a story. He like, uh, he was a champion pole vaulter in college. And then 
he decided he wanted to like be part of the burgeoning aerobics craze and he moves he moves to Anchorage where he like starts this aerobics studio like he may or may not have been Sarah Palin's track coach like we couldn't ever track that fact down exactly um and he starts this fitness studio and he likes what he says is that he had this workout that was really really hard and that people the women of Anchorage were just loving it and one of them after class one day said um I think she was like my husband loves the way my buns look it's like they're made of steel and then he was like that was like the moment of uh, where like it all came together and he eventually makes a video and sells that video and then I mean becomes like quite successful essentially off the name as much as anything else um the of steel franchise becomes very very popular in the in the second half of the 80s and into the 90s because then as you may recall it's like then there's abs of steel and arms of steel and um he goes off to guam and becomes like a he like teaches high school in guam and then he now he lives in las vegas and kind of just loves to talk about his of steel days um yeah, and the I mean it's it's definitely like a specific story that's very emblematic of a larger movement that happened in the 80s like, you know, Jane Fonda is probably the one we all know the the best, but where all of a sudden people were exercising in a totally new way and like a lot more people had access to exercise than ever before because before like basically the mid 70s gym culture like really was not a thing and especially for women but even for men, it was sort of suspect to to go to the gym and like lift weights. And there was like a little bit of a feeling of like um, freakiness. And there's like definitely like some homophobia mixed into that. Um, like there was a, a suggestion that you should be in shape, like maybe like in like I, the vibe I always got from historians around this was like, you should be in shape enough to like be able to fight in a war, but like not any more in shape than that if you're a man. And if you're a woman, you should just be thin and that's about it. Yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger makes the great point that when he first came to America in the seventies, there wasn't a single hotel that had a gym in it. And now there's not a single hotel you can find even the cheesiest hotel, even when you might wish it had other amenities that you might be more inclined to use. They typically have got a, a stairmaster hidden off somewhere behind a, an actual staircase. Uh, you mentioned 1997 uh, as, as a sort of flashpoint. I don't know if you were specifically referring to Sir Mix a lot is that what like who no that's the Gen Jennifer Lopez oh the, okay okay so I guess yeah. he, he he predated that who knew that when the story of our culture was told that Sir Mix a lot would figure in so prominently and yet he inarguably does he was sort of the prophet and Jayla would sort of be the the you know that prophet made good that prophecy made good in our society but I was wondering in reading this um how much would you speculate the like big buttization of our culture to a certain extent? It's obviously got something to do with social media has put it on steroids because things that pop on camera are, are going to be rewarded there. But to what extent is it a demographic thing? I mean, I, I don't want to, this has potentially could sound crass, but I, like I read somewhere tortilla chips are now outsell potato chips in America. And partially that's because a lot of non-white people continue to move to America, but it's also because a lot of white people tried tortilla chips and went, Oh, I get it. I could get into those. Yeah. How, how, how much was the big budization of American culture inevitable from a demographic point of view? Yeah, I think it's, it's like a really interesting analogy. I mean, the, um, so when I talked to like a bunch of scholars about this, uh, like there are a few scholars who specifically think about butts, but then there's also like the scholars of hip hop. So in the nineties, there's this really interesting thing that there, that is happening, which is hip hop is becoming the dominant musical form. And by the early two thousands, it sort of depends on how you measure it. It overtakes rock as like what mu popular music is in the U S and at the same time, there's a massive demographic shift happening. Like you're saying, like there's a lot there's an increasing uh, Latino population and an increasing black population. And, but also white people love hip hop. The biggest, the biggest demographic for hip hop, you know, again, statistics can be argued, but is in the nineties is white men. And there's a lot of kind of actually like hand wringing at the end of the nineties books written, et cetera, about like, why are men, white men so into hip hop? Like white people are freaked out about it. I think a lot of hip hop artists are a little bit like unsure about what to do with that fact um 
And along with the rise of hip hop comes the rise of the hip hop video, because in the 90s, basically the main way people were interacting with music was on MTV. I mean, there was still a lot of radio play, but, you know, a a song when it came out was a video as much as it was a song. And so um, there was there were a lot of big butted women in hip hop videos. You know, Sir Mix-a-Lot is kind of in some ways. Baby Got Back is kind of almost like it was so prevalent he was making a parody of it. I mean, he wouldn't say it was a parody, but that's to some extent what that that song and that video is. So by the end of the 90s, you know, it's it's this kind of combination of all these different factors of changing demographics, white men in some sense trying to, you know, play in their own kind of blackness and be interested in black culture. And also a kind of changing understanding of bodies. I mean, and I would say between 1997 and like 2010, there's this like very interesting thing that happens where big butts are getting more and more popular, but so are like super thin bodies, you know? And it's like these kind of like poles are kind of pulling on each side. And then when Kim Kardashian and Instagram comes on the scene in a weird way, like big butts kind of win for a little while. Does that answer your question? Uh, yeah, I mean, do you think that big butts have seeded ground? I'm happy to say I barely look at my Instagram, Twitter, uh, uh, my Instagram or Twitter timeline anymore. Is are big butts are they like getting less? Popular? Yeah, are, are they recessing now? I mean, there's definitely a theory that they are. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm like such a historically minded person. I'm like, I couldn't even begin to say for like ten more years what's right. happening now. Gotcha. But um. Like when the book came out in November, there was a few articles that was like that had come out and, you know, in Vogue and other kinds of like fashion magazine type places that were basically like uh, thin is in again. And there's this kind of throw, you know, supposedly the Kardashians are taking out their butt implants like this kind of thing. I wouldn't be surprised if that's what happens. I mean, there's a lot to be said about about that. Like thin never really went out of style because although big butts became very popular in the 2010s it was never like big butts on big bodies it was sort of like a big butt attached to a very thin body was the sort of like ideal and acceptable way to have a big butt so um i think what they're really saying is like those kind of flapper rectangle bodies are coming are coming back into style and we'll we'll see it wouldn't be surprising because of the way that fashion swings back and forth and also i think the fashion industry was a little bit didn't know what to do with the big butt stuff that was happening in the 2010s. Like when you read the fashion magazines from like about 1997. So in 1997, there's this moment where JLo, um, she's in a, this Steven Soderbergh movie and all of the press mentions her butt. It's like all of a sudden they realize like the mainstream press is just like, there are women with big butts and they're sexy. It's like, they just had never even noticed before that moment. Um, but Magazines starting then through the 2010s, they kind of don't know what to do with it because they're, they've spent decades telling women how to lose weight and how to make their bodies smaller. And then all of a sudden there's this interest in making this one part of the body bigger. And there's not, it's not really clear how to commodify it in some, you know, at least at first it's not, they figure it out eventually. (laughs) Um, So I don't know. And then it's, I, 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 I guess I would not be surprised if then the fashion industry kind of reverts back to its more kind of comfortable place of encouraging extreme thinness, essentially. Well, you mention in the book the the practical challenge of for the fashion industry of um, making uh, it's in their interest to make things as close to one size fits all as possible. And human beings don't really, you actually met there's turns out there's one woman who has not the perfect, but in the JLo sense, but the perfect, but in the, in, in the fashion, she has, it's like the, the Goldilocks of, mm-hmm. of, of butts. This is the fashion industry would prefer if smaller butts came back into style because it's literally just easier to make a pair of clothes that you can scale up whether they're a size four or a size six it's the the less very uh, variation in the size of butts the, the better for gene makers right it's about that simple yeah although i mean just because they want that just because the ideal becomes that we have small butts it doesn't mean we actually have them so right. if they still want to make the problem is it's really hard to make clothes fit as many different kinds of bodies as there are and it's really hard to make clothes fit f- fleshiness basically so 
um, one of the reasons it's easier to make men's pants fit than women's are that women have fleshier butts than than men in general. Um, and they come in more varieties of sizes. So, so yeah, I mean, I think if the ideal went back to being super thin, I, I guess that would probably be a little easier for the fashion industry, but it really wouldn't solve the underlying problem in any meaningful way, which is that it's just really hard to make pants fit all the different kinds of people that there are. I mean, the thing that helped them the most was the discovery of spandex and right. kind of putting lycra and spandex in jeans made it so that they could have more pants that f fit more people um it seems that there's a uh the way that we perceive uh female butts is uh, and what the perfect butt is perceived to be changes uh throughout time um and then back again whereas it, it seems to me the idea of a perfect male butt has been fairly stable am i crazy about that i was trying to think about this and when you're talking about what's desirable in a woman we can go back as far as i mean that being age of reason rise of the individual etc yeah. etc et i mean i feel like you kind of need a you know, women's lib and, 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 and the sexual liberation of women for their, I mean, I'm not aware of there having been, um, money to be made on male sex symbols in the culture until like the fifties or sixties. I'm sure there were plenty of women who would line up to see Humphrey Bogart and anything because he was their kind of guy, but nobody was like buying photos of his butt, you know, whereas to me, it seems like it's rock and roll is where, Mick Jagger's butt, uh, Bruce Springsteen, you know, did the backwards pose. There's a lot of rock bands that have the, the cover is the guy's butt. Even if in one case, the band Loverboy turns out it was actually the photographer's 14 year old daughter, I think, because nobody oh, could, God. nobody, nobody could fit in the pants that they brought for the singer to wear. So as a joke, they put his daughter and, and to this, and then I think the singer stuck his, his hand doing like fingers crossed over it so that everyone would assume oh, it was his that butt. picture. Yeah. Yeah. There you, oh, there you go. There's the backstory on that. There is an idea of what a sexy male butt is, but it, yeah, I guess it's gotten more muscular over the last few years, but that seems sort of stable and doesn't seem very likely to change. Now, I know in the gay community that may be a different story, but I don't see, you know, the gay sensibility often infiltrates mainstream thought and, and likes and dislikes. I don't so far. I haven't seen that so far. And it, it seems like we always change what we think about women's butts. But for guys, there's there is a standard of what a good butt is. Am I missing something? I mean, men's butts are your guess is as good as mine in some ways. I mean, I have done a little maybe a little more research than the average person. But yeah, um, I thought it's interesting. It kind of the thing that it comes to mind is the way that men's like fashion changes a little but not a lot right. like there's like you know until really recently it's like essentially men wore suits to the oscars and sometimes they were blue and sometimes they were black and that was kind of about it um so that might be the case the one thing i know the one kind of thing i'll add to your theory about it is that um i talked to a scholar who knows a lot about greek and roman statuary and I do kind of think that the male butt ideal is tied to some extent always back to that far and distant past. Um, and, and that that is like, you know, a part of like a sort of homoerotic aesthetic that was part of the Greek and Roman times, but also it, and that I, I always had the question of like, how did the, how did the Greeks and Romans think about female butts? Cause there were these kind of, there's this famous statue called the Venus of Calipige, which is like the Venus with the beautiful buttocks. But this scholar told me that actually what that was referring to was it was like a Venus with nice a nice butt, like a man's butt. Like it was almost a little bit of a joke. It was like, she's got a great butt. And by great butt, we mean men men's butt, good men's butt. Wow. And, so the, the, and I think that's a so sexist, interesting. A sexist ideal for female beauty is that's a new one. Yeah, it's just sort of like this idea, like, um, like the scholar was like, it's sort of like, if you were like, my girlfriend's so cool, she watches, she knows like all the football right. scores, like that there's a kind of like tomboy 
sexiness that they're kind of alluding to. But it's funny because that's, you know, we think of those Venus statues as this sort of like epitome of female beauty. So that doesn't really answer your question, but I do think that there's there's got to be something about those that Greek and Roman ideal, which is always kind of coming back in neoclassicism. Right. Um, that is, I feel like it's sort of, sort of like the, the, you know, pl- like, you know, no pun intended, like the platonic ideal of of maleness and yeah. male buttedness. No, I mean, that, you make a terrific point. I, I'm, I'm tracing it back to the to 1963, and you're quite rightly tracing it back to, you know, 4000 BC, which is a quite... A, well, I don't know. That, that's, a, mean, that's a little bit longer. I think no, but rock no, but, and roll no. probably has a lot more to do with... I mean, because there's also the interesting stuff about rock and roll and like the kind of way that men could be kind of sexualized in a new way, not just by women, but, you know, there is like gender bending stuff that's happening in rock and roll that I think sometimes we forget about, you know, and that like tight pants and all of that, like it was seen as very uh, subversive and sort of effeminate in some sense. And so, right. Even as it's this kind of like hyper masculine ideal. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't even know what the word is. I'm sure there is one. I just can't think of it. There is just sort of a homoerotic nature to like, I was really into hair metal and the band that had the coolest singer with the best hair, who was the best looking guy was cool and it didn't have to be, it wasn't in a gay way for most of the people, but at the same time, it was men admiring, boy, I wish I was as handsome as, and I don't know that we really have a word for that, because it's really, really, really reductive to say, if you find a guy attractive, that means you just secretly, you can't admit to yourself you want to sleep with the guy. But no, there was totally, something yeah. really big about, we want to see this band because their singer's kind of hot. You can't ignore the the the, the sexual, you know, uh, romantic, whatever you want to call it, attraction uh, element of that. Uh, what a couple of I should have started with this stuff, but more like science based questions. Mm-hmm. What? Why do we have butts? Like what? For other than sitting, is there any theory as to why? Like animal, I. I don't know how many animals really have butts in the same way that you do. I think you kind of need to be bipedal to be in the same con, you know, like rhinos have, have butts and elephants and, and horses and stuff, but monkeys don't really have butts the way that we do. And they sit, I've seen them sit. So why do we, yeah. so why do well, we don't, we don't have butts to sit. That's uh, the, the scientists I talked to, told me that we're actually butts are actually a uniquely human feature. There's only a handful of them. <laughs> right. Like the whites of your eyes is another one. Um but only humans have butts in like a sort of proper sense. And uh the the reason we have the butt muscles, so there's like a hand there's like three muscles that make up your butt. The biggest one is your gluteus maximus. We're all sort of familiar, right? And that that muscle is part of a set of adaptations that are used to make us great runners. And it was really only recently discovered that this was the case. Um, the The glutes basically make it so you don't fall forward when you're running. Because if you ran without them, you just sort of tumble onto the ground. So they kind of pull you back. Um, and there are part of adaptations like your Achilles tendon and your ability to sweat and a bunch of other things that make it so that we can run really long distances. And it was a way that um, early hominids hunted down animals. They basically outran them and then they like beat them over the head with a stick or whatever. And then they had access to meat and calories. And that was a really crucial adaptation for us to be able to have the big brains that we have. And up until like basically the nineties, they thought that most scientists thought humans were terrible runners and that bipedalism came before or sorry, big brains came before bipedalism. And then it was discovered that that actually wasn't true, that the running was a huge part of the adaptation. So in some ways, butts make us make it possible for us to like have this conversation and like have podcasts and write books and all kinds of stuff. Now the fat Mm -hmm. is a whole other story though, because it's not your butt isn't just, isn't just muscle. It's also fat. So when female humans have quite a lot more fat than than male humans and that's for reproductive purposes basically it's not for pregnancy but it's for breastfeeding because breastfeeding takes so much so many so much calories to be able to do it um and so it's sort of a fat store and then there's like a lot of different theories about why that fat is stored in the butt and in the breasts which it definitely doesn't have to be it could be 
as one scientist told me, it's like it could have been stored in the elbows. Um, it would have looked funny, but maybe we would have liked it. I don't know. I'm sure and, we would have. Yeah, we would have fetishized that if that had been the yeah, case. Yeah. So, but probably it's just the most um, physiologically convenient place to store it. Because if it were, like, if it were in your elbows, you'd sort of trip over it and it would make it harder to move around. But if you store a lot of fat in the middle part of your body or like the lower middle part, it's it it works well for the kinds of movement that humans do. I guess for balancing, it's near your center of gravity. Right. And uh, for those of us who haven't taken a human biology class in a couple of decades, um, remind everybody what uh, secondary sex characteristics are um, and what role did Darwin play in um, defining or codifying the concept of those? And finally, three-part question, like, do do butts really count? Oh, it's this is in some ways like one of the hardest questions. And it's like I only I'm a science reporter at like one of the best science podcasts in the world, and I still only kind of understand it. But um so Darwin was very troubled by what we would call secondary sexual characteristics or really just ornamentation. There's like a famous passage where he talks about orna ornaments and armaments. So these are things like peacock feathers, but also like antlers, like big horns, because if you're thinking in evolutionary terms, these are very costly features that actually kind of make you more likely to get gotten by your enemies. So like a peacock with his giant blue feathers, it's like it's way more visible. Also, like he has to carry that those giant heavy feathers around. Like, why are they there? They're so they're sort of I mean, Darwin found it very troubling. Um, and he comes to theorize that uh, these are. <laughs> ways of attracting mates that are, you know, it's like when we think of secondary sexual sexual characteristics, they're basically parts of our bodies that exist on some level because we sexualize them. Like there's so it's a uh, like the female peacock finds the male peacock with the fancy feathers attractive. And so that, you know, that so there's more so females that are mating with the fancy feather peacocks. And so there's more fancy feather peacocks that are ex coming to exist in the world. Um, it's tempting to think that the female finds the peacock feathers attractive because they mean something. And this is a very common thing that a lot of people think. And it's kind of the basis of evolutionary psychology, which is something like I feel pretty skeptical of. So this theory is something like uh, the the giant peacock, blue fancy peacock feathers are symbolic of the male peacock being more fertile or more um, vicious to attack, you know, the the other peacocks who are going to like get the eggs or something. So that they're what they call honest signals of um, of some other kind of fitness that would then make it so that the that the offspring of that peacock have other kind of advantages. But there's a lot of biologists who think that that is both very hard to prove and we should never assume it. So when we think about this in terms of women's butts, like there's a lot of articles in places like Maxim Magazine, but also like to be fair, like The Atlantic runs these articles too. lots of places, kind of even The New York Times, like places that we would consider very uh, prestigious publications have run, run articles that with headlines like, you know, why like big why do men like big butts and then the answer is something like big butts are sim symbol signals of higher fertility or big butted women i don't know i'm trying to remember what the various theories are that it's like are you know in some sense are better adapted to to have fitter offspring but there's really no evidence that that's true and um it's kind of a dangerous road to go down i would say because you start to sort of say when you're when you're when you talk in those kind of terms you start to sort of situate that there's certain kind of people with certain kind of bodies that are evolutionarily better than others and really like we're probably all equally adapted to the world that we live in more or less and as one scientist told me like any butt that's not killing you is a good enough butt 
Well said. Yeah. <laughs> Put that on a coffee mug. Uh, I mean, and also that seems, I mean, the Atlantic got, uh, got a little funny for me years ago. Uh, it seems like if that were true, that that would be fixed. Like symmetry seems like a much more consistent, you know, the, that the theory that, well, it suggests this or su- suggests that doesn't explain Kate Moss. And that was in our, in our lifetime. So it's like, Quite a bit easier to once thing something has happened to connect some dots backwards than it is to actually make some sort of overarching theory. But are are butts so butts are secondary sex characteristics? Do they? Care? I mean, it's kind of unclear. I mean, right. we don't know. I mean, it's butts could look all kinds of different ways for all kinds of different reasons. I mean, a lot of people find butts attractive, so in that sense, they're sexualized but that's about i would say that's about culture not about biology for sure you could say the same about feet yeah i mean there's so i think i think it's much more interesting if we just decide it's we don't well i mean it's not a decision it's like if we just sort of accept that we don't know yet and that it might not be something that's knowable and instead get kind of interested more in why we want there to be a scientific answer to questions of human attraction which is kind of like what we're ultimately talking about because i think our desire for science to answer the question, why do I like big butts is a way to sort of not have to face answering that question in other ways, which are about psychology and culture and are kind of offer us a much more interesting answer to me, I think. So in, in the end, now you've, you know, you've written this book and you've gotten feedback on this book and you've done interviews and and so on and so forth what's your biggest personal takeaway if you if you went back to where you were when you first maybe started considering writing this book uh, of course it's a it's a personal journey in addition to a, a work project um how fundamentally has your understanding of butts changed in the last few years i mean i think that the thing is like I really saw the way that human beings turn bodies into metaphors and how committed we get to those metaphors. Um, and sort of like just what I was just saying about the science thing, it's like, it's actually just much more interesting to kind of unpack the metaphor and figure out why those metaphors are important in different ways at different times. And I mean, it was kind of, it was definitely like an intellectually fascinating thing to do. And also, I mean, honestly, there's so much about this, these stories that are so tragic. I mean, the story of Sarah Bartman is horrific. And then also even like, you know, the ways that American eugenics plays into it, or even just the ways that like so many women feel bad about the way pants fit them, but it's not because there's anything wrong with their bodies. It's just actually just nearly impossible to make pants fit people, you know? And that, I don't know. So I think that sort of starting to see the way that our bodies work as metaphors. It's definitely just intellectually fascinating, but it also, I think, is is kind of personally, you know, it's it's been personally at least a little bit transformative because I think it then allows me to to think differently about my own body and about the bodies of people I see in the world, you know, to sort of question the assumptions I'm making about people based on their bodies. Well, on that note, uh, my guest has been Heather Radke and her book, Butts, A Backstory, is newly available for pre-order and paperback. I think it's out next month, which means theoretically this summer you could be on the beach observing butts in their natural habitat, habitat while also learning quite a bit about them. So I encourage everybody to check that out. Thank you once again for your time and for your book, Heather. Thanks so much. Thanks again, as always, for listening to The Tully Show. Before I let you go, let me remind you, whatever you are into, there's a good chance I'm talking about it over at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Music, life, news, the uh, fairly satisfying outcomes to the New Jersey pasta mystery and the UK gimp mystery that was on last week's episode of telly time alone that and oh so much more is waiting for you at patreon.com slash mike tully hope to see you there